But to people who actually, you know, can open their eyes and go and look at what's going on in the world, there's, there's never been a more exciting time, to my mind, to make money in equity markets. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist and former Australian Treasury official. The aim of this show is to help you better understand the big economic issues affecting all our lives. We do this by considering the theory, evidence, and by hearing a wide range of views. I'm delighted that you can join me for this episode. Please check out the show notes for relevant information. Now on to the show. Hello. In this episode, I sit down with former investment banker Will Nutting, who runs the Nut Stuff newsletter. Will shares his views on where he sees opportunities emerging in 2024 and beyond. Among other things, we talk about gold, uranium, Bitcoin, distressed debt, and even about investments in Russia. You'll hear Will's frank and fearless perspectives on markets and about how paying attention to geopolitics can give investors an edge. What I really like about Will is that he's contrarian in an intelligent way. As always, when we're talking about investments, this is all meant to be general information only rather than specific investment or financial advice. If you have any thoughts on what Will or I have to say in this episode, or if you have any ideas about how I can improve the show, then please get in touch. You can find my contact details in the show notes. Righto, let's get into it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Will Nutting. Will Nutting, thanks for joining me on the program. Absolute pleasure. Great to be here. Excellent, Will. Will, you're the author of the Nut Stuff newsletter. And what are you doing in your newsletter? Are you, are you, you're surveying the global economy, are you? Well, listen, I mean, Nut Stuff started when I worked in the world of investment banking or world of broking on the investment banking side. And I, I got sick to death of, of ultimately having to retranslate unintelligible, conclusionless politically correct research and and i got to a stage whereby i just felt that the what the investment banks were producing was stuff that was doing anything but giving you an investable conclusion and it was also perfectly hedged that, mm-hmm. that no one really came out of it as a say with with you know with, with, a, with a clear opinion and i think by nature i was always reasonably opinionated mm. um and so i guess from my perspective you know i i, I when i left investment banking or i, or I left broking um at the suggestion of a few clients, um, I set up on my own. COVID kind of hit about twelve months later, and so suddenly everybody suddenly everybody was at home and no one was in meetings. And that stuff really took off. And I did this as I say when I worked inside um, a bunch of U.S. investment banks. And of course, it used to put me head to heads with the research departments and the heads of compliance because very often I was saying things that I probably shouldn't have been saying, or I was saying them in a way that maybe I shouldn't have been saying them. But I think we've I think we've got to a world now where if you wake up in the morning and you watch the BBC or CNN or Fox or you watch any network in Australia and you read a national newspaper, you know, I'd assert that if that's your media and your news input, you're probably never more ignorant than you've been in the last 20 or 30 years as to what's really going on in the world. And so nut stuff came about as, as really to try and have me doing my curated sources that I built up over 30 years, where I really felt that I had a line into whether it would be stuff going on in China, whether it be stuff going on in Ukraine, whether it be stuff going on in the Middle East, whether it be stuff going on in markets. I felt that if I had a curated bunch of contacts who I knew themselves 
were as much of truth seekers as I was, that we would be able to put together a network and a platform um, whereby when we discuss subjects and we try to do the curated narrative of the market, what's going on in the market, where the world is going, why things are actually even happening in the world today, which we can talk about. Um, when you got out the other end, you got something that was readable and that kind of connected the real world and the financial world. And so if you were sitting at home trying to run your portfolio or you're time poor and you're trying to run your business and you're having a quick look at your investments, when you end up sitting down with a guy that manages your money or you end up sitting down with yourself managing your own money, you actually have a tool that hits your inbox a couple of times a week that actually really points out some of the anomalies, but it also does the so what on markets. Because you know, we can talk about all this stuff, but you know, if, if, if we woke up tomorrow morning and found that we had a we had a peace treaty in Ukraine, we had a ceasefire in Ukraine. I guess the key question to ask is, how does that make you think differently about portfolios, positioning? What would you own? What would you sell? Probably more importantly, and how would that change your bias as to how you would look into 2024? So I do a lot of this kind of stuff, you know. And as I say, it's not just me. I have some extraordinarily talented and interesting inputs. Um, which, as I say, I built up over you know nearly thirty years of doing this. Gotcha. Okay. Can I just a couple of uh, questions based on that? Will, uh, which investment banks have you uh, worked for or worked with? So I was so I, I never I started my life at Flemings, uh, which was a UK or Scottish actually investment bank that got ends up being bought by JP Morgan, uh, doing Japan, uh, which was pretty. Pretty soon after I left the military as a as a soldier, uh, I then, to be honest, didn't find a natural gravitation towards Japan, and I did to the US. So I then ended up going to work for Cowan, which was a Boston-based investment bank that got bought by Sockgen, and then I went from Cowan to uh, to Bank of America, well, to Montgomery actually, which ended up mm. being bought by Bank of America. Uh, that was a West Coast technology house, and we did a lot of West Coast West Coast growth sort of growth investing. And then I went from Bank of America to Lehman. And then I was at Lehman for five and a half years. I thankfully left before they disappeared in a puff of smoke. Um, and then I ended up in two or three other investment banks. But the last one I, I ended up in was was a Stiefel, um, which uh, which is a regional, uh, you know, a regional investment bank in the States. So I always had a big bias to the US, but in a lot of the global investment banks that I worked for, I, I always realized there was a relative game. And so I would always look at, you know, whether was there a rest of the world, European, Asian, UK equivalent stock sometimes to play a similar theme. Yeah, gotcha. You mentioned that you thought that some of the analysis coming out of investment banks or analysis in the media, it's not telling you the full story. Uh, and you thought you could add, you could provide a better perspective what do you think they're missing do you have any examples of where you think uh that analysis has been deficient and and how have you uh improved on it do you have any examples of that will well i think there's i think there's a whole bunch of different areas uh, the first one i would say is that i think a lot of the alpha that you can make and maybe this isn't necessarily alpha inside the big index positions in markets, but a lot of the pure equity alpha you can make, you can make from frankly just being contrarian and being brave. And so, an example I would have of that is we were looking at the uh, at the at the sort of 
the, the craziness in ESG and the illogicality of a lot of the ESG world three years ago. Yeah. And, and we picked up on a big theme in coal. Um, there were no investment banks had coal analysts anymore in the same way that hardly any investment banks have a, have a cannabis or marijuana analysts anymore. And, and we looked at that opportunity in coal. We saw how small the, the market capitalizations were. And we thought these companies and these stocks are not going anywhere. All they're doing below the radar screen is paying down debt. Um, and they're ludicrously cheap. They're ludicrously unloved. And when everyone hates something, it must go up. And when everyone loves something, it must go down. So it was a simple investment metric of, of, of becoming quite well known for doing a lot of work on, the, on, 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 uh, on coal stocks. So I guess inside investment banks, there was a lack of bravery. There was a, there was a cow towering to, oh gosh, evil coal, coal's bad. Um, but the perverseness of thinking that coal is bad, but somehow lithium mining and copper mining is all done with people wrapped in cotton wool in nice fluffy places is madness. Mm. So it was the double standards of a lot of corporate policy towards which companies and which industries you could cover. So one, I guess, is the lack of bravery. Um, and, and a lot of the uh, people use the expression woke. I, I think woke is a bit of an oversimplistic way of looking mm. at it. But I think it was, as I say, it was a lot of selectivity in wanting to be seen to be doing the right thing. And and I've always, you know, thought that, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So that was the that was the metric on which we started to look at some of the you know uncovered areas. I think just in general with equity research, you know, having a view and having an opinion that goes against the establishment, you know, was is is a is a very difficult thing for most people to stomach. Um uh and and I obviously talk about the geopolitics and the politics quite a lot because I think it really matters as to markets today. So I've had a very resolute view on Ukraine, which was behind the tragedy. There was no possible way Ukraine was was going to beat was going to beat Russia in a fair fight. I, I wrote very early it was David and Goliath, and you know, and and David had a chance against Goliath. But, you know, once he ran out of stones, you know, he was never going to beat Goliath. And I think what we've seen even in the last 24 hours with, with Putin's, you know, lightning flash visit to, to, to Abu Dhabi and now in, in Saudi is, is the ramifications of that are that, you know, the world has completely largely misread what has gone on in Ukraine and where that's going to go. So I think that's obviously something that, you know, as we've been very resolute on. Um, the Middle East, to be honest, I, I've... I've stood back from, uh, but the thematic that I've had for the last two and a half years was uh, a world of a rise of the oppressed and the revenge of the colonized. And I guess that was my sense that we were in a three to five year secular move where the West has got all the entitlement and all the debt and all the arrogance and the emerging markets and the global south because of the ubiquity of a lot of u.s technology have had their eyes open to the fact that they've been oppressed and exploited by the west for many many years and that is gradually coming to an end now that has ramifications for a dollarized world that has massive ramifications for countries in Central Africa, which you know most people couldn't put on, put on a map, but look at what's going on in Niger. Who suddenly woke up? You know, Mr. Macron in France suddenly woke up one day when Niger had a coup and realized one, the CFA franc was going to come to an end in Niger. 
Secondly, he was suddenly not going to end up with any uranium for his nuclear power stations. So, again, that's how the geopolitics plays into the market and, you know, the, the ESG new energy world. So I guess, you know, they're just a few examples of things that I kick around and look at. But as I say, the, the overall sense to me is, is that you've got a, a, a bucket of market capitalization in seven, seven US stocks, a lot of luxury stocks in Europe, a few selective stocks in the UK. And at the opposite end of the market, you've got lots of shot glasses of potentially really, really exciting areas of alpha. Um, if you're willing to really go and kick the tires in the equity world, in the equity world, and so I want to have you know keep a foot in the big stocks because I think you need to do that from the perspective of staying relevant to index fund managers, but to people who actually you know can open their eyes and go and look at what's going on in the world, there's there's never been a more exciting time to my mind to make money in equity markets. Right. Okay. Okay. Very good. Now, can I ask you about you mentioned about Ukraine and. Uh, so Putin has been in the Middle East, and, and I think you were saying that I can't remember the, the words exactly. But it, it, is there going to be a peace treaty there, or is there going to be some sort of deal cut in uh, between Russia and Ukraine? Is that is that what you're suggesting? Is that going to happen? And basically, Ukraine's going to surrender some territory. I don't know when. Uh, I don't know what my timing. My suspicion and. Is that the timing is much sooner than anyone thinks? I think I'm right in mm. saying that the head of the US, the head of the Russian military, and the head of the Ukraine military both share the same Christian name, which is Valery. Um, I think it's spelt in a Russian way, not in a not in a Western way. But yeah. I think what I'm what I'm being told and what I understand is that there are ongoing conversations at the moment, and they are effectively deliberating over really three things, which is you know. Uh, the location location of of, of talks, um, the way in which elections would be would be um, conducted, and three, who would actually, well, I guess four really, who would be the the arbitrator of that? Which I think probably would be Modi in India. Modi's probably uh, trod a more neutral path on Russia Ukraine than any of the major countries. Um, and and then I guess it's the the nature and relationship of Ukraine. With with joining NATO, but I, but I, as I say, I I don't I think what we've ended up doing, if, if you think simplistically, Nixon and Kissinger spent many many years ensuring that China and Russia stayed well apart, so that we didn't get sandwiched in the middle. And what Mr. Biden and his friends and Mr. Johnson and everyone else have done in their wisdom is they've ultimately pushed the Russian bride into the arms of the Chinese bridegroom. And when you look at the reciprocity between Russia and China, and you look, I think I heard um, Louis Vincent Gave say this, he made a very good point, which is that Russia have everything that China don't have and China have everything that Russia don't have. So really, the two fit together conceptually on paper incredibly well, apart from the fact that I don't think the natural bias for middle-class Russians is to want to go to China any more than the natural bias for middle-class Chinese is to stay in China. I think they want to go to the West. They want to do Western things. Exactly the same thing applies in Saudi Arabia, you know, to to to, to people in Saudi Arabia. So, I think that what we need to do is we need to have a we need if anyone needs to have a regime change, we need a regime change in the West. And the regime change in the West needs to realize that 
Russia is a is a is a is a, a a collection of states and countries that have eleven of the world's twenty four time zones. This is a massive, massive landmass of hugely diverse um, um, cultures, and to to wish for the destruction of Russia, to wish for a maimed and angry Russian buffalo, is to see massive instability in the world. And so, mm. to, to my mind, a, a, a Western rapprochement with, with Russia is desired. And I think, the to go back to the David and Goliath analogy, I think it's very real to my mind that you will see more signs of, uh, of a peace treaty um, between Russia and uh, between Russia and Ukraine, I think sooner rather than later. And I always, I, I've always said, and I'm, I'm not original in saying this: is you know, as soon as the money runs out, um, uh, you know, the, the world will move on. You know, middle class England and middle class America all have flagpoles, and you know, they just it's like a semaphore competition. You know, it's the Ukraine flag one day, it's the Palestinian flag the next day, the Israeli flag the next. You know, it's, it's who can put flags up and down. And, and and it's very fickle and it's very fast moving, and and the world will move on very quickly, tragically, to um to, to the next conflict, which which by the way might be you know, might be Guyana next door to Venezuela, for example. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been I've been following that. Uh, now, do you think that the West will, or the United States and Britain, will try to? Uh, you know, it'll try to repair its relationship with Russia so that it splits, it, it doesn't have Russia and China in a block against it. Is is that the suggestion? Is that what your, is that your best? Uh, I, think, well, I, think, I, think, I, I think it goes back to, to, to the point, which is that if you're sitting in the UK, you're sitting in the US, and you mm. can have a pragmatic view about where you are at in your, it, you know, take the Ottoman Empire kind of equivalent analysis, right? Or the Holy Roman Empire, mm. where are you? As I say, you've got, I mean, I looked at the, I was watching the um, uh, the, the presidential debates, the, the leadership debates in the US last night. I mean, and the the level of rudeness and offensiveness and, and, and unpleasantness, you know, it, it, it just plums new depth. So, you know, mm. we, we live in a society now that is so disrespectful of institutions. And there's a reason for that. The institutions have a lot to bear for that. Secondly, again, we have massive indebtedness, huge amounts of entitlement, and also we have all the old people. And it's an unpopular thing to say, but you know, can we afford to continue to support you know the elderly populations that we do? Um, and the answer is probably not. Um, but no one's willing to have that conversation, you know, politically, because. It's certainly in the UK, UK politics, it's probably the same in Australia. You know, it, you know the the, the grey vote has is, is, has been the vote that politicians have, have 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 been trying to bribe and try and get hold of. So for me, it's a it's a case of evolve or die in 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 in, in Western case. And I'm not saying it's in the next twelve months, but if you look at the history of the last twenty years and look at all the conflicts that that, that you know we've been involved in, I must. And we've obviously followed the US into a lot of these conflicts in, in good faith. You know, that was all great when money was free. When money, when we were waging a few wars in Afghanistan and, and, and places that most Americans and most Brits couldn't put on a map, it was all great. But you suddenly take the cost of money from costing nothing 
to positive real rates. And you've got a completely and utterly different world to play with, you know. And not only are you seeing that emerging in the world of private equity, those people that, you know, that, that walked on water and, 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 and could do no wrong, um, you know, look at the, look at the, look at the performance numbers in, in that industry if you actually really break out the numbers for those funds since inception. So when I look at it, as I say, I just think, I think the world is changing. And, and if I was sitting there and, and, and talking to, as I do on occasions, talk to politicians, it's understanding that it, it is a case of evolve or, 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 or die in many respects. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can I ask about the Middle East? What, what are your thoughts on what will happen there? Is there still a risk of a, a wider regional conflict involving Iran, uh, involving other states in the Middle East? I don't know that I have a you know greater perspective on this than anyone else. I mean, I was horrified by you know we've all seen the equivalency of the equivalency of what went on on the seventh of October would have been you know the IRA in the UK killing nine thousand people. We can do all these analogies, and I'm not going to get taken down a down a rabbit hole there. You know, I go back to the end of the Ottoman Empire in the in the twenties. I go back to Sykes Picot when you know a Frenchman and an Englishman sat down with a crayon probably with a glass of port and drew up the lines of the Middle East. But I guess when I stand back and I take away, you know, go back to a time when these countries didn't exist uh, and try and look at the true history of this and then fast forward to where we are today, I think it's incredibly difficult to see how a a two-state solution exists in the Middle East and how we get to that stage. But again, I think what we've got to have is we've got to have leaders in the West who, who who have an interest in not accelerating and not exacerbating these conflicts. And I think we need to try and find a way of, 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 of dealing with this, you know, um, because the optics of the world looks at what's going on in the Middle East and the shocked as they are by what happened on the 7th of October. Um, I think they're also looking and saying, maybe there is a, an, an unacceptable civili- civilian casualty rate to the operations that are going on at the moment. Um, so, as I say, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. When it comes to Iran, I mean, I think I think the Iranian leader is. I think he's visiting Putin in Moscow today. I mean, Iran seemed to be, you know, seemed to be very quietly, obviously playing a, uh, you know, a very, um, a very strong game here, you know. Um, but as I say, I, I, I don't want to even think about escalation um, uh, at the moment, and and I, I'm hoping that, you know, I, I hope that cool heads can prevail. Okay, we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. So I guess what I'm interested in, Will, is to what extent are you factoring in these geopolitical uh, risks you know, going forward, such as you know what's happening in Ukraine, although it sounds like that sort of that may not be a big factor in the future, given that there could be some sort of a deal. 
what could happen in the Middle East and also in uh, you know China, Taiwan? Is that is that a risk? Um, to what extent are you factoring these potential uh, what would you call them uh, zones of conflict or flashpoints into your investment recommendations? So I run this. So I have this little um, this little fund, this little portfolio that I publish every Monday, and it, it's 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 got a few million dollars in it, and it's 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 a, a, a small amount of people's money. Uh, it's not open to, to external investors, and I don't want to be a fund manager. But what I do want to do is to see that people see that I eat my own cooking, and I reflect. You know, I, I reflect my my thoughts and my ideas in six or seven key thematics. We have a macro overlay thematic which we use a bunch of ETFs to ultimately just reflect where we think the interesting parts of the world are. Um, and then obviously we have six kind of key thematics like global digital infrastructure and, and, and you know, and energy and infrastructure and stuff like that. So, so it's a fairly mm. simple, logical um, uh, portfolio. As, as to factoring these thematics in, yes, I do. But, but conversely, um, we sold out of most of our US defense stocks seven or eight months ago, uh, by way of example. You know, uh, we still have some exposure to, uh, to to fertilizer, so you know, feed the world. Um, but on the whole, you know, I, I I don't, you know, I'm I'm very I'm very selective on you know trying to play the kind of war and conflict trade inside equities because I think the market gets you know the market gets pretty savvy with it. We still own BAE Systems in the UK. Um, we've owned we own some we've owned some Rheinmetall uh, in in Europe. But I think you know if you looked at the defense stocks as an example of what you of what you asked me, you know, I think what we're discovering now is that even the nature of warfare is changing. And yeah. although these defense platforms are vital and hugely important, and whether it be aircraft carriers, F twenty twos, F thirty fives, multi billion dollar incredible aircraft, you know, also low level, you know, almost analog warfare. When it comes down to drones, etc., you know, is something that the world is waking up to. You know, I've got an, you know, I've got an aircraft carrier, and you've got fifty thousand. You know, I'll raise you your aircraft carrier to fifty thousand drones. Now, you know, I'm sure that a state-of-the-art aircraft carrier has the technology to repel drones, but I suspect if there's a really concerted drone strike on on a, on, a, on a carrier group. You know, you you could probably inflict some some fairly cataclysmic losses. So, to me, things like the th- things like the the defense sector is much more important than oh gosh, we live in an up we li- we live in a world. You know, let's just blindly go and own defense stocks. Oh gosh, we live in a high conflict world. Let's blatantly just go and own oil stocks. You know, I I prefer the capital spending infrastructure infrastructure cycle type names. You know, so when it comes to energy. I like infrastructure. I like uranium. Has been a you know still a huge and has been a big focus of mine for the last three years. Um, I like offshore drilling. I like the lateral businesses to offshore drilling, um, uh, where you've also got you know huge cash generation and debt being paid down and such. So we're pretty selective actually about how we how we play those thematics inside portfolio, the, the, the portfolio. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Can I ask you about uranium? So are you? Uh, do you think we will there'll be a uh, a resurgence in demand or a resurgence of investment in nuclear power? Is that what you're uh, projecting? I mean, listen, I, uranium is. I mean, 
I, I mean, I hate to, you know, I hate to say things are that simple, but to, to my mind, uranium is the is the is the it's a it's this it's a simpler supply demand story as I've seen in my thirty years of doing this. You know, you've got you know 150, 160 million pounds of production. You know, you you've got two hundred ten million of, of 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 demand. If you if you use an analogy of oil with those numbers. Uh, you know, it would be the entire focus of the world on on the deficit in on the deficit in oil. You know, I mean, I think it's twenty five percent of U.S. electricity production comes from 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 nuclear. And also, it's not just a case of digging uranium out of the ground, putting it on a truck, driving it to a power station, and, and and loading it into a furnace. You know, you've got to actually process the uranium. You've got to produce the fuel rods. There's a huge bottleneck. So there's been a complete lack of capital spending in the uranium space. Because there's been a complete lack of capital spending in the energy bridge. And I guess I want to divert to this and just say that when you look at energy policy and energy spending, you know, I think if we were sitting down with 20-year-olds or, or our children and explaining the world that we want to get to in terms of energy, the other side of the chasm, I think we all kind of know what that looks like with wind, wave, solar, etc. But we have to supply on we have to we have to provide baseload power and 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 baseload power when you think about the energy bridge from the old world to the new world is unfortunately a lot of fossil fuels and it's going to be a lot of fossil fuels for the foreseeable future which is why yeah. you know met coal is still a hugely exciting space but when it comes back to uranium again uranium is an area where you know it, it is is the lowest cost the lowest cost electricity apart from hydro and utilities have completely and utterly under uh, underspent on 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 shoring up their supplies, and then load on that the unknown quantity of small modular reactors coming into the market. Um, uh, I just think you've got a tremendous call option. The only thing that surprises me about uranium is one, how tiny the market capitalization is. So for most index players, it's kind of irrelevant. Don't talk to me about uranium. I you know I can't even. I can't even think about it. It's not. It's it's nowhere in my index benchmark. Um, apart from Cameco, is about the only stock that I think is any kind of relevance to people. Um, but I think for anyone who's smart and 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 actually tries to look at where the world's going, I'm I'm surprised that uranium isn't 150 dollars a pound. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And you mentioned offshore drilling. So this is consistent with your your expectation that we're still going to be relying on fossil fuels for several decades into the future. So I suppose that yeah, yeah, that, it, that makes sense. It is. It is. And I, it's a, I, when I try, when I try to think about energy transition and energy positioning and energy policy, it kind of takes me back to school prize giving. And it makes me think, you looked at me strangely then, I know, the, uh, I was just thinking. I mean, that's a very um, it's a very British thing, isn't it? The school, the school prizes. I was thinking of a. Uh, there's a great um, uh, Jeeves and Worcester uh, story with the prizes, but we, <laughs> I won't divert onto that. But go ahead, go ahead. So, so the the way I think about it is that is it's a bit like the ESG industry and, and energy policy, which is that yeah. the ESG industry and the whole environmental policy. What it's done is it's continued to reward. The you know the nerdy kid at school with the pebble pebble dash glasses who was super bright, 
who always won the science prize, okay, from day one, continually given the science prize. To me, yeah. that's the green energy company. They were they started good, they stayed good, and they got even better at being good. The, the problem is that the most exciting and most interesting prize to award at school prize giving was the really badly behaved kid, the big kid who had a real presence at school, who was the badly behaved, disruptive guy who was running around making a mess everywhere, causing damage, doing bad things to other kids, who suddenly became a better behaved kid. And you could then give them the prize of being better behaved. So when I look at energy, and that's the brown energy companies, that's the Occidentals, that's the Exxon Mobil, that's the BPs, that's the Australian equivalents, it's, you know, whoever it is. And so I think that mm. if only governments and if only investors and investment mandates could take a look at these companies and say, right, you know what? We need to start rewarding the businesses here that kind of do a better job of evolving not only is it going to be a good thing to attract capital back into these companies who can continue to invest in the energy bridge as I, as I as i call it you know but also i think it's you know it's 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 just going to send the right message to the industry so again i i'm not i'm not a climate denier i'm not an esg disliker or hater i'm just a pragmatist and so i think that the second wave of esg whatever however it looks that will probably evolve in the next, you know, one to five years. I think it's going to be much more joined up thinking, much more honest, uh, and much more realistic. And so, as I say, I think you know the the cop boondoggles of, of, of the last few years. You know, the latest one we had last week. I think it just. I think we've seen peak, you know, peak nonsense, and I and I think <laughs> as peak ESG and as peak climate nonsense dissipates, I think some really interesting investment opportunities will come out the other side of it. Okay. Okay. Very good. I liked uh, how you described the, you talked about the shot glasses before you wanted to have some shot glasses. What's in your shot glasses at the moment? Will, can you give us some idea of what those, uh, uh, those, uh, are they, are they speculative investments? How would you describe them? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I think so. I guess just to paint a scenario for this, the I don't know what the data is, but probably over ninety percent of equity investing is passive. So let's mm. take it that it's passive funds, it's machines, it's it's quants, it's everything else. So what's left over at the end of the day is either you as a retail investor or as a as a as a you know as an active investor scrabbling around saying, have I got an edge on Microsoft? Have I got an edge on you know? Can I can I have, do I have an edge on Palantir and AMD versus owning NVIDIA to get my exposure to artificial intelligence? Am I the smart? Am I smart enough to have worked out that IBM, as a forgotten, you know, as a forgotten cap, um, a technology mega cap, might actually have technology and might actually be really, really relevant to AI? And could the AI halo? suddenly shine above IBM, which is what you're seeing happening at the moment, for example. Now, yeah. I talk about some of this stuff and, and I write about it and, and, I, and I'm hugely focused on it because it's hugely relevant for alpha and for performance. So I view those as the kind of buckets or those are the buckets of market capitalization. What's really interesting is in, in small cap and mid cap world, up until about three weeks ago, it was literally like all the pint mugs in the world had disappeared, you know, 
And it was either, as I say, a bucket or as a shot glass. And the shot glass is all the all the tiny stuff. So a lot of it, as I say, it's it's uranium stocks, it's offshore oil stocks, it's you know the odd gold stock, it's coal, it's special situation things that we have in healthcare, like really interesting uh, company called Cardiol that deals with the some of the aftermath of COVID vaccines with pericarditis and myocarditis. Um, it's a uh, it's a gold company that has a hidden uranium company inside it that we look at and focus on a lot. I've said coal already. It's tankers, some tanker stocks. You know, if you look at what's going on in Panama and look at what's going on with in, in potentially in the Suez Canal, you're beginning to see new tankers are not being built. You're now actually seeing some tankers having to go around the whole south coast of America without going through the Panama Canal. Think about what that does to day rates on tankers, um, et cetera. It's crypto. I have a you know a, a positive, a cynical. I'm 55 years old, right? So I'm kind of a middle aged, yeah. middle aged white guy with a with a natural cynicism towards tattoos, ponytails, and people talking to me about crypto. But I've absolutely yeah. embraced it. We absolutely own it and invest in it. And and I think there's some really interesting, fascinating trends. And and the final thing I was going to say to you is we also and cannabis um, and marijuana stocks. Which remind me of kind of coal in 2020. We have a we have some positions there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Uh, with the crypto, uh, uh, you mentioned that uh, there are some trends that you're you're excited about. What are those with crypto? Well, I think to be to be positive about to be really positive about crypto, and to repost the the the, the cynicism that you see out there of it doesn't really solve any problem. It's, you know, it's, it's the currency of criminals and, and perverts and, and, yeah. and, and, you know, weirdos. I think you have to get your head out of the developed West and go into emerging markets and go to Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, you know, um, uh, and, and actually see how people use crypto, see how people are entirely comfortable with having crypto wallets, see how people use crypto as um, as equi- as um, a security for loans in the same way that you know um, crowdfunding has worked in, in 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 the West. And so, as I say, I think when I look at the risk reward on crypto, when I look at crypto's entire market cap still being about one tenth that of gold, and I look at the usability of crypto and how I see crypto developing that usability. And I, and I think I'm right in saying there's 22, there's about 22,600 different cryptos, but 53 or 54% of crypto's market cap is basically in effectively Bitcoin and Ethereum. You know, so to me, I think, you know, if, if you don't own Bitcoin, you don't own Ethereum or synthetics or, or any kind of DeFi plays, and you're sitting in front of grown up investors, I think you'd better have a really, really good reason why you don't. You better own lots of gold as an alternative. Um, and I'd suggest that if you actually get on a plane and go and travel to the global south, the parts of the world that are growing really fast with dynamic young populations, without old people, without entitlement, and with no debt, you'll come back feeling a whole bunch more about crypto than you would if you're sitting in your office in Mayfair or Washington. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Now. What's your process for 
for getting these insights. So you mentioned you've got a you've got an extensive network. Have you got a team working for you? So we have. I mean, we in terms of kind of you know full time employees, there's basically there's effectively um, we're, we're pretty much a team of two um, in terms of actually running the business on a day to day basis. But I have about five um, people who some were old clients of mine, some would be people I've known for many years who, on the whole, were all super successful, all retired, um, and are all living in interesting parts of the world and all doing really interesting things. But also, they massively wanted to keep their head their their head in the game in terms of markets and macro and geopolitics and everything else. And so what happens is that, you know, a little bit like having a research department. You know, if I want to, if I want to look at global video games, or I want to look at coal, or I want to look at tankers. I have my own go-to sources where I would go to. Um, you know, we're not writing, we're not even writing a five-page report. To my mind, what I'm trying to do at that stuff is to make people question, make and make make people think. On occasions, make people laugh and try and make or save you money. And so, these sources and these these um, people that kind of work with us, our partners, if you like are just incredibly useful as one, as kind of sounding boards, but also as amazing sources of perspective and information. And, you know, they are on the whole, you know, in some respects, just trying to do what I'm trying to do, which is to hone, you know, they're, they're truth seekers, they are, um, uh, and, and, and they're, they're realists and pragmatists in terms of how they look at the world. So we have, you know, regular conference calls, we, we have regular brainstorming sessions every week. And so I have a really good, experienced team that are kind of a, a second check on me and, and and on occasions you know we'll sit on a call and i'll go i oh, know i completely off the wall on this and am i am i am i mad thinking thinking about this in this way you know how and, and and then the other question i guess i ask is how consensus am i is everyone else talking about this because if everyone else is talking about something or everyone else is focused on something you know i don't want to be the last guy at the party drinking the mind sweeping the drinks you know um, you know, I want to be the kind of first guy at the party. And I don't really mind if, you know, I've got to make small talk with, you know, with the granny, you know, until the fun people turn up. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, so who's your newsletter pitched at, Will? So, I mean, you mentioned like you've got high net worth individuals. Um, like who would, who's going to benefit from this? I, I think it's, you know, it's pitched at, well, when you look at the content of it, it's got yeah. a bit of everything for everybody because it's got some thought-provoking stuff on the geopolitics side. It's got some real-world stuff that you know I just pick up from people sending stuff to me, and you know, and I scrape out of you know me, other media stuff and, and and such like you know. But on the whole, if you're time poor, if you're intellectually curious, if you have to look at markets or you have to look or, or you have an interest in understanding how the real world meets the financial world and how that looks it's really pitched to anyone in that environment so you know we have anyone from one of the most respected you know macro hedge fund managers in the world who who uses it as a as a real world check you know and you know if you if you sit inside a big new york hedge fund for example you know 90% of your employees probably get a chauffeur-driven car to work. They get a chauffeur-driven car home. You know, they, they, half of them, a lot of them fly privately. You know, they have restaurant quality food delivered to their desk and, you know, such like. Most of them don't even ever look out the window 
and actually go and look at what's going on in the world, you know. And so we're kind of a reality check. We're a real-world reality check as to look at this. Have you thought about that? Um, and as I say, what, anyone who receives that stuff really is somebody who's who's intellectually curious. And, and all we're trying to mm. do, I think, is to make people feel and look a little bit smarter about a whole bunch of subjects. And, and the process, what I love about it, is there's a huge reciprocity, which is that people, I get an enormous amount of feedback from people. And so if I'm really... If I'm really taking a, an aggressive stance on something political or geopolitical or something about the market, you know, it, it's very interesting to me to know how much pushback I get and who gives me that pushback. But it, as I say, it's a yeah. it's a hugely broad church from some of the most respected entrepreneurs and investors in the world, family offices, but also I have a lot of people's kids, you know, who've left university, who've been given their first, you know, twenty or you know twenty or thirty grand. They've just started an equity portfolio. And they're trying to work out, you know, they're understanding the, the power of compounding mathematics, and they're trying to work out what they should own and what they shouldn't own. Okay, so it sounds like it it's not necessarily out of the out of reach for uh, you know people who aren't uh, hedge fund managers. Then I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to it so people can check out. Uh, the, uh, yeah, and our, the details. And Gene, our system is, you know, we give people a month free or, or whatever it is. And, you know, uh, it, mm. you know, it's say, I mean, it, it's a 85 pounds a month is a meaningful, it's a meaningful investment for a new, for a, for a, for a letter, but it's not a newsletter. It, it's, it's a facts, ideas and conclusions letter. And so it really does drill down to and give you investable conclusions. And that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, we charge what we charge is because, if you make, frankly, one decent investment decision, it, it pays for itself, you know, hand over fist. Gotcha. Okay. It's global focus. So you'd have a focus on East Asia and Australia. Glo- global focus. You have- global focus, absolutely. And and one of the reasons I travel as much as I do is because I go to, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many countries I've been to this year, but, you know, Namibia in Africa, South Africa, Mozambique. Um, I've been all over the stands, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan. Um, I've been to Panama. I've been to Colombia, just to name a few. And when I go there, I don't just go there to lie on a beach. I go there and I meet people who run. You know, I, I wandered around Volfish Bay's port with the guy who 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 who, um, who runs the port in uh, Volfish Bay in Namibia, understanding what's going on with oil discovery and infrastructure in the energy and oil business in southwestern Africa. You know, uh, I went and met the guys who run all the um, all the power transmission business in uh, in Namibia as well, and understanding that relationship and what's going on with South Africa and their power problems in South Africa. So we really do go and meet and try and understand what's going on in, in, in places. And then I'm just looking for those nuggets of of interesting stuff to explain to other people how, why and how those things are happening, but also looking for investment opportunities. Okay. Okay. Very good. Uh, final question, Will. 20, 2024, what are you expecting? What do you think? Uh, do you have any ideas on what the what big developments there'll be? What what are you uh how are you positioning yourself for 2024? So I think 2024, if I'm if I'm if I'm right, I think there's a there's a slim chance that we get an acceleration in in a, a partial acceleration in inflation. But on the whole, I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping and thinking that 
the current escalation that we've seen in kind of geopolitics calms down. I don't see China um, escalating with Taiwan. I think quite the opposite. So I see some rapprochement of some of the geopolitics, but I also see a, a big drive to nationalization. So I think, you know, countries are increasingly going to be looking after themselves. You know, there's going to be an anti-Davos psychology to most to, to most countries. You know, I think we're going to be going through this huge election cycles. Uh, and so I think those huge election cycles is going to feed that. I think it's going to feed economic nationalism. You know, when it comes to, you know, I think gold will go higher. I think Bitcoin will go higher. I think Russia will potentially be a really fascinating investment. I think coal um, alongside uranium will still be great investments. I think oil arguably um, will still be a very good investment as well. So on the whole, I'm still focused on kind of the bottom end of Maslow's hierarchy of needs pyramid and less focused on the top, you know, not saying, okay, not saying that we aren't going to have some incredibly good opportunities in technology. And I'm absolutely not the guy trying to write off artificial intelligence, but I do worry that the seven big technology companies in the world it, for an entitled indebted West that needs to cut debt, I do worry that they are such serial underpayers of tax that the potential opportunity for uh, for, t- for for tax rates to have to go up materially inside these big technology companies, I think to me is a big concern. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, okay. Righto. Will Nardine, anything else before we wrap up? This has been terrific. I, I love your insights into being contrary and how you can benefit from it. I mean, not I mean, being contrarian in an intelligent way. I think often there's a lot of, you know, there is contrarianism and it may not be helpful, but I think you can be in contrarian in, in an intelligent way. And I think you've demonstrated that with some very good examples. Any other points before we wrap up? I said no. I, mean, I think I think if I was sitting talking to young people in in, in school, and I, and I didn't want to talk in kind of financial language, I'd say I think the kind of the the Anglo-Saxon world needs to get back to its its culture and its balance and its realism and its focus. And I think we need to focus on getting back to our traditional strengths. And I think what's interesting is that's what Russia and China are doing. And I think that when we stand back and we look at how we're going to navigate this next very difficult period, you know, of 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 multiculturalism and everyone having a phone, everyone having an opinion, everyone seeing what's going on in the world unfolding on a daily basis on a screen. You know, I think we're going to have to go back to basics. And I think it's going back to basics in society. And when it comes to investing, it's going back to basics in investing, which is, you know, free cash flow, you know, um, uh, you know, low leverage. Um, and me as a shareholder and an equity holder getting returns. Uh, and if I'm looking at the toxic areas of the market, it's probably going to be a world where, where you know, distressed debt is going to be a, a fascinating opportunity. And uh, as well as I think, you know, global macro, um, it's not going to be private equity. Um, and it's probably good. It's, and it's probably not going to be bonds. But I mean, I'll let the bond, I'll let the, I'll let the bond guys um, pontificate on that. 
Gotcha. Just before we go, what do you mean? What what were you driving at exactly with distressed debt there? Well, so I mean, I think what do you have in mind there? If I started today, if I you know if I started today, I listened to a podcast um yesterday with the head of Blackstone's real estate business, and apart, apart from the fact of not understanding really any of the language that she uses, she sounded to me like you know she'd been schooled in the same school that the principles of um of harvard and penn university have been schooled in which we've seen in all the news wires in the last 24 hours you know i i think that the the opportunities that are going to be unlocked in the next two years as retail investors are kind of locked in the church and and, and set fire to as they have opportunities to go and buy the retail tranches of the these big private equity firms um off distressed offerings I think that if you're sitting there with a big pile of cash, um, the opportunity to go and buy, you know, cheap UK assets, um, but the same way, I think the opportunity to go and buy exposure to very cheap real estate assets um, is going to be huge. The question for me is, do you want to own the equity or do you want to own the debt? And I suspect being as high up the capital structure as possible is where you want to be. And you probably need to, and you probably want to get paid to wait. So I'm going to imagine that I think the debt side is more interesting than the equity side. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Righto. Well, Nadine, this has been fascinating. I really appreciate your insights. I will uh, put a link in the show notes to Nut Stuff. And uh, yeah, I encourage uh, if you're listening in the audience and you like what Will had to say, then yeah, definitely check that out. Uh, I think it's. Uh, it sounds like you've got a great process there, Will, and yeah, really enjoyed your insights. So thanks so much again for your time. Pleasure. And obviously we can sign, you know, we can we can sign people up for we give people a month or a couple of months for free and you know, um so we can work on that basis. But um listen, thanks so much. Really, really enjoyed it. Excellent. Thanks so much, Will. Great. Cheers, mate. Thanks a lot. Right Thanks for listening to this episode of Economics Explored. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email via contact at economicsexplored.com or a voicemail via SpeakPipe. You can find the link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could tell anyone you think would be interested about it. Word of mouth is one of the main ways that people learn about the show. Finally, if your podcasting app lets you, then please write a review and leave a rating. Thanks for listening. I hope you can join me again next week. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more content like this, or to begin your own podcasting journey, head on over to obsidian-productions.com.